So John 18, 28 through 19, 16. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to, be, to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Have you guys ever witnessed uh, a gross abuse of justice? I think I'm going to start out potentially, um, potentially going really, really controversial. 
Uh, I don't know if you guys have been following the news or not, uh, but there's been a trial on the news that has been going on for a little bit now uh, and was finally concluded this week. Uh, it was the court-martial uh, of Edward Gallagher. If you guys aren't familiar uh, of the story of Edward Gallagher and the trial uh, that he was put on, uh, he was a Navy SEAL and uh, allegedly, and I'm going to try to be very careful with my words here, but allegedly back in uh, 2017, here's how the story went, uh, the U.S. had recently done an airstrike on enemy combatants, and uh, they had taken captive one of these enemy combatants who was wounded during the airstrike. This particular enemy combatant was a young man. He was 12 years old. Uh, he was taken into U.S. custody and brought into the base that they were at at the time. Uh, his wounds and injuries were sought to by U.S. medics, and then they were trying to figure out what they were going to do with him. Edward Gallagher, uh, allegedly, walked up to this young man who recently had his wounds again uh, cared for and mended uh, by U.S. medics, went up to him with a bowie knife and proceeded to stab him in the neck and then in the chest multiple times. Twelve-year-old um, enemy combatant who was uh, imprisoned by U.S. forces. It was his own team, it was other Navy SEAL members that were part of his platoon that ultimately turned him in. Uh, this case has got all kinds of um, political people. You have people on both sides trying to argue for uh, their point and really kind of making a, a figure out of Edward Gallagher. And then this last week, uh, Edward Gallagher was found innocent, or I should say he was found not guilty of six of the seven crimes that he was accused of. Uh, the one crime that he was found guilty of was taking a picture with an enemy casualty. You see, this was actually undisputed because they had uh, the text message evidence where he sent text messages to two people back in the States. One of the text messages read, uh, my knife skills are on par as he held the hair back of uh, the man that he had stabbed. And then the other one read, I have a funny story to tell you about this. Love this Bowie knife. Allegedly, he didn't do these things. But when I hear about this, when I hear about the other Navy SEALs uh, who literally testified against him, uh, the, the defense was essentially uh, he is not guilty of murder because one of the other medics uh, suffocated him as an act of mercy rather than have him bleed out and suffer. There is a possibility that there are details to this case that we do not know. There's a possibility that there's something that because this is war that I cannot understand and perhaps those of us who are over here safe, we cannot understand. But if even half of the story is true, uh, the way that it's being presented, there was a gross misuse of justice. His actions, uh, I believe should find him guilty if half of this was true, yet the only crime that he would, uh, he would serve any time for was that of taking a picture uh, with, the, with the dead body of the young man. This was a trial. 
uh, that happened just in this last week, that I should say concluded in this last week, and in this trial, again, we see uh, just things went not the way that they were supposed to be, at least if what we know is true. In the text that Abby just read for us, we're going to be looking at another trial, a trial that occurred uh, nearly 2,000 years ago. And in this trial, uh, much similar to the case of uh, Edward Gallagher, we're going to see another trial where there was uh, a gross abuse of justice. But that's not the only trial we're going to look at. Uh, Not only we're going to look at a trial that occurred 2,000 years ago, but this evening, uh, from the Scripture, we're going to look at a trial that began the day you were born. Because Scripture makes it clear that every single one of us, in some way, shape, or form, our lives, the actions that we do, the things that we think, the motives of our heart, all of it, one day we will be held accountable for. We are on a spiritual trial where God himself is our judge. And based on the works of our hands, based on the thoughts of our hearts, the things that we have done and the things we have not done, the verdict is in, and we are found guilty. But as we're going to see, as we look at this trial that occurred uh, 2,000 years ago, this ancient trial, there is hope. There is hope for guilty parties like you and I, and our hope is this— Jesus can pardon the guilty. We learn that from John chapter 18 and the beginning part of John chapter 19. Uh, And specifically, we learn that Jesus can pardon the guilty because only he is innocent, because only he has the power to do it, and only he can be our substitute. Only Jesus can pardon the guilty, and he can do it because he is innocent, because he has the power and he is our substitute. Those are the three points we're going to look at uh, this evening. So this first part, uh, Jesus is the only one who is truly innocent. So we're going to begin looking at this uh, ancient trial by actually looking at the case of the prosecution. So we've been following the story of Jesus up to this point for the three years that he ministered along with his disciples. For the last couple weeks and months, we've looked at the last uh, words Jesus had to speak and instruct his followers, and now we're beginning with his passion. So last week we saw, or two weeks ago I should say, we saw how his best friend, one of his nearest and dearest followers, betrays him but how Jesus, who is the one who has all power, uh, still uses his power even for those who betray him. And now in captivity, now in captivity uh, and under uh, the authority of the Jewish religious leaders, he begins to be put under trial. So let's go ahead and look at the case of the prosecution. The biggest thing that I want us to see is the irony that the Apostle John uses here in this case. Because while they are trying to present Jesus as being guilty of violating God's law, they themselves will violate God's law in multiple ways. Let's go ahead and look at the evidence. Let's go ahead and look at the case of the prosecution. Uh, So really, the trial, in some way, it begins in uh, chapter 18, verses 20 through 21. 
we see that Jesus is presented before the religious leaders. He's presented before uh, the Sanhedrin, or at least in some way, shape, or form, at the house of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, again, the Old Testament makes it very clear that if you are to try a criminal, you must have multiple witnesses. So as they are questioning Jesus in the earlier parts of John chapter 18, what does Jesus say even at the beginning of this trial? Listen, uh, don't ask me. I've only spoken the truth the entire time. Call witnesses. You know God's law. You know what you're supposed to do. But they are so convinced, they are so persuaded that they are correct, that Jesus is a blasphemer, uh, that Jesus is violating God's law. They don't actually care about truth. And that's going to become really, really evident. So, they want to make an example out of Jesus. Not only do they want him humiliated, but they want him killed. And they want him killed in the most shameful, most humiliating way that they know how. That is crucifixion by the Romans. Now, the Jewish leaders back in this day, back in this time, they didn't actually have the authority uh, to execute someone. Now, there are places, even in the New Testament, where we see maybe mob violence, like the stoning of, uh, of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, but they did not have the judicial authority or the judicial power to actually put someone, even if they had deemed him a criminal, to death. And that's where Pilate comes in. Pilate, the Roman uh, ruler, Pilate, the Roman governor, he's the one who had the power to accomplish what they needed to get done. He's the one who actually could say, yes, we are going to execute this criminal. And so that's exactly what they see. They bring him before Pilate. And we see that things more or less kind of go downhill from there. Now, one of the things I want us to notice, uh, in verses 29 and 30, uh, there isn't actually a formal charge. Pilate begins and he asks the question, okay, you know, what's the charge? What did this man do that I should judge him, that I should uh, say that he's guilty? Verse 29, so Pilate went outside and said to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? And again, notice, they don't have an answer. They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, uh, would we not have delivered him over to you? More or less saying, you know, just trust us. You know, you know us. If he didn't actually do something wrong, we wouldn't give him to you, so you need to go with it. There's no formal charge that they can actually bring before Pilate, the judge. And then we know how the story goes. Uh, Pilate begins to interview Jesus, and he keeps going back, and he interviews the, the Jewish authorities— and ultimately, we get it repeated again and again uh, in the text that we just read. Pilate does not find Jesus guilty. He specifically says it in verse 38. He specifically says it in chapter 19, verse 4. He doesn't find Jesus guilty because Jesus is innocent. Again, what Jesus is ultimately guilty of is challenging the status quo. And I say guilty, and I say it ironically, because Jesus is innocent. So the Jewish leaders who are riding their moral high horse, the Jewish leaders who are insisting that uh, they are the only ones that know how to read the Bible correctly, they're the only ones that know the truth of God correctly, uh, again, they are bringing these accusations that Jesus has violated God's law, and in doing this, they themselves completely contradict and violate God's law. Uh, in verse 31, 
we see how they are willing to, uh, again, I already said that they want to make an example out of Jesus. Uh, They want to make sure that he is killed in the worst way possible, and and so they want to see him completely disgraced. You see, their Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, verses 23, it tells us this, that anybody who is put to death on a tree is accursed by God. So again, because Jesus is challenging the religious status quo of the day, hey, here's really the heart of God the Father. Here's really what he thinks about you. Here's really how he interacts with you. Because he is turning things upside down for the religious authorities, they want the crowd who's been following him. They want the crowd who has found what Jesus has to say incredibly interesting. They want the crowd who is intrigued by Jesus. They want to leave no doubt. This man is not God. This man is accursed by God. See the death that he died. He, he was killed. He was killed on a tree. So again, they're trying to go out of their way to manipulate, uh, to manipulate the law, to manipulate how things would go, that uh, they would put Jesus to death. They're willing to lie, uh, a violation and contradiction of God's law, to, to maintain their power. It's not the only place. We also see it in the very last verse that we read uh, in, verse, um, in verse 15. When Pilate says to them, you know, here, take your king, they reply to him, we have no king but Caesar. So again, uh, this is incredibly ironic for multiple reasons. First of all, God has made it abundantly clear in the Old Testament in places like Judges, in places uh, like 1 Samuel chapter 8, that he and he alone is meant to be king over his people. Now, at this time in redemptive history, he has been ruling over his people through a Davidic king. But again, the whole point of it is the Davidic king is supposed to be in subject to God himself. Now, the Romans, Caesar, those who the religious leaders are, are, are giving their fealty to, to, to here uh, at this point in the text, the one who they're claiming their allegiance to, they've been nothing but cruel. They've been nothing but abusive. They've been doing nothing but uh, essentially putting the Jewish people under their foot so that they would know their place. There's only one person that the religious leaders hated more than the Romans, and that person was Jesus. And they hated Jesus so much that they're willing to claim uh, allegiance and fealty to Caesar, the one who's been using and abusing them for years now, to ultimately see Jesus put put to the death. You see, there's a few things that we learn from the religious leaders back in the day. There's a few things that we uh, learn from them, but I think one of the biggest lessons is this. We are willing to deceive ourselves. We are willing to deceive ourselves. I think that's exactly what's going on. They are so sure of their opinion. They are so sure that what Jesus is saying can't be true, can't be right, that even though they've been confronted with truth again and again and again, even though they've been proven wrong again and again and again, they are unwilling to let it go. They are unwilling to accept the truth. So much so that I believe they are justifying their actions. Yes, we're violating God's law. Yes, we're doing a little evil so that the greater good may come of it. From our perspective, I think we could look back at them and we could say, how could they? How wicked? How cruel is that? 
But before we point the fingers, I think we must be willing to look in the mirror and look at our own hearts. Because frankly, I could relate. There are times where I care far more about being uh, right or having my voice heard than I care about what is actually right and wrong. Are there places in your own heart, are there places in your own life where you justify actions that you know are wrong because you believe ultimately you're accomplishing the greater good? Like keeping a secret sin hidden and safe because, you know, well, if they knew this would actually do a lot more harm than good, perhaps illegal activity? What about being harsh and cruel to your children because they must learn to respect authority? And if I must be harsh and cruel for them to get that message, well, still, they'll learn the most important lesson, and that is respect, right? I think if we're actually willing to hold up a mirror, again, we're much more like the Jewish authorities that are clearly manipulating things, that are clearly doing things wrong here. And I think when we look at their case, when we look at their prosecution, what we are ultimately to conclude from this is just as they were, so too do we find ourselves guilty. But again, the main thing we learn from this text, the only hope that we have is that Jesus can pardon the guilty. He can pardon the guilty because he's innocent, as we see. None of the evidence that they present, none of the case that they make can actually hold up because he's innocent. But not only can he pardon the guilty because he's innocent, he can pardon the guilty because he has the power. And that's the second point we're going to look at here this evening. Uh, commentators, as they look at Jesus' interaction with Pilate across all four Gospels, what they essentially conclude uh, is this relationship, this back-and-forth dialogue that occurs between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, Ultimately, it is a confrontation of two powers. It is a confrontation of the world's power and the world's authority and what they are able to do, and it is a confrontation of the one who truly has authority, the one who truly has power. So let's kind of go ahead and, uh, and look and see how these two uses of power, uh, how they're portrayed here in this text. So again, the way that the narrative plays out his pilot is moving back and forth between two audiences. On the one hand, he'll be standing here in front of the Jewish religious leaders and hearing their opinion, hearing their side, and then he'll move behind the scenes and he'll go back into what appears to be somewhat of a private place and talk with Jesus. And he'll hear, what's your side of this? What do you have to say? And again and again, we've seen that Pilate uh, is viewing Jesus as innocent. Now, Pilate, uh, I will say that a lot of the times when I was reading Scripture for myself and trying to figure a lot of things out here, I found Pontius Pilate to be a really confusing character. Because I think in some gospel accounts, he's portrayed as this wicked, really, really bad person. And then in other gospel accounts, you read it, and it's like, well, he even here in John 19, then he tried to get Jesus released. And so it's like, maybe he's not that bad. But uh, ultimately, I think what we do need to conclude about Pilate is he really is. He is a bad dude. Uh, let me go ahead uh, and explain. Uh, Pilate 
was willing, uh, he was unwilling to do the right thing that he may maintain his power. The very thing that the, the Jewish religious leaders are guilty of, Pilate is guilty of the exact same thing. So, for a while, he's putting up actually uh, a pretty strong face before the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, Listen, this man is guilty. Do with him what you will, but I'm not going to execute him. I've seen nothing is wrong with him. He begins to put on a tough face, but then again, because he's a political person and he cares more about uh, his political reputation than doing what is right and wrong, he has Jesus beaten. Uh, Again, to save face, he has an innocent man beaten by his own soldiers to potentially appease the crowd, to potentially make the crowd think that, okay, you know, yeah, you know, he's surely, he's had enough. Pilate begins there, but then yet again, when he presents Jesus bloodied and beaten and wounded, the crowd still says, no, no, we want him crucified. And there's a moment where it appears that Pilate uh, is not going to do it. He's not going to do it, period. And then he goes and he talks to Jesus about this. Can't you see? They want to crucify you. You know, answer me. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you guilty? And uh, at this point in the text, Jesus doesn't answer him. Jesus doesn't say anything. And Pilate, thinking that he is the one who is in charge, thinking that he is the one in control, uh, he confronts Jesus, and he says, don't you get it? I'm the one that has the power over life and death. I can say the word, and you will be executed. Or I can say the word, and you uh, can be free. And then Jesus, in verse 11, he really, I believe this is the strongest rebuke that he gives to Pontius Pilate. Jesus answers him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus makes it abundantly clear who was the one who was calling the shots here in John chapter 11. Excuse me, in John chapter 19. And then after that, we see Pilate, the one who, uh, at least from outward appearances, looks like the one who is the most powerful man in the room. We see him crumble because of fear. In verse 12, there is a political attack that occurs on Pontius Pilate. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So at this point in time, Pilate is having, you know, the mindset, hey, this is a uh, local Jewish squabble. This is about theology and truth, and who cares because they don't know what they're talking about anyways. You know, this is not worth my time. But Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, ultimately he is a politician, and his father-in-law is a politician, and they know what to do and what to say to move the pieces and play the game in such a way that they will get what they want. This title here, Friend of Caesar, it's actually a political title. And I guarantee you the second Pilate heard the words, you are no friend of Caesar's, it would, it would have begun, he would have began to shake in his boots. Uh, he would have began to experience great fear. Here's the reason why. The emperor at the time uh, when Jesus was crucified was Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar was known to be uh, paranoid. 
Tiberius Caesar was known to do cruel and abusive things to anybody who questioned his power. When Tiberius Caesar was coming into power and he was um, getting a name established for himself, he had a political ally. This political ally, his name was Sejanus. Uh, for a long time, you even knew that if you wanted to climb the Roman social ranks, that if you wanted to gain more power in Roman circles, if you buddied up to Sejanus, it would almost be the same as if you were friends with Caesar himself. That was how you played the political game in Rome at the time. Until around AD 30, around AD 31, Tiberius Caesar heard a rumor heard a rumor that his best friend, his closest ally, Sejanus, was actually uh, scheming against him. That Sejanus was actually kind of, you know, planning and plotting how he could overthrow Tiberius and how he himself could become Caesar by stabbing him in the back, much like the first Caesar, Julius Caesar and Brutus. Paranoid as he was, Tiberius Caesar decided to make an example out of his closest friend and dearest ally, Sejanus. And not only did he execute Sejanus for potential treason, but he went and killed every single one of Sejanus's supporters and friends and everybody that had anything to do with Sejanus. If you were associated with him, uh, men, women, children alike, you were put to death by Tiberius Caesar. This is what's in the memory of Pontius Pilate when he is being accused. Uh, you are no friend of Caesar's. It would have been fresh in his memory. Oh, Sejanus had this political title. He was a friend of Caesar. I potentially have this political title. I'm a friend of Caesar. Ah, but look what he's being accused of. Jesus is being accused of being king. Jesus is accused of having his own kingdom, and there is no king but Caesar. And look what happened the last time Tiberius even got a, a hint that somebody who was even near and dear to him was questioning his authority, was questioning his kingship, was questioning his power. And so Pilate saves face. Pilate knows that uh, the game has been played, and really at the end of the day, even though it's a subtle threat, uh, there is no backing out of it at this time. Uh, if they want to go this route, that is the Jewish religious leaders, if they want to question my own authority to Rome by saying somehow that I am loyal to this, you know, Jewish insurrectionist, well, then I'm the one that's going to be in trouble here. Pilate has named Jesus innocent multiple times. Pilate has said there is no wrong in this man. But the second, the second his own political career is brought into question, the second his own safety is brought into question, now right and wrong don't matter. Now he's going to do whatever it takes to make sure that he protects his own skin. Pilate the one who looks like he is the most powerful one in the room, is actually the most fearful and cowardly one in this whole trial that occurs. And so there's much that I think that we could learn from Pilate. He was unwilling to do the right thing for fear of what it may cost him. He was unwilling to do the right thing for fear, frankly, of what other people would think about it if he did the right thing. 
And so just as we look at the religious authorities and we must hold up a mirror and see where do we look like them, so too must we hold up a mirror when, when we read about the actions of Pontius Pilate and, and we must ask ourselves the very same questions. Are we afraid to do the right thing because of what it may cost us? Are we afraid to do the right thing because of what others might think of what we do? Do we actually care about what's right or wrong, or do we care about keeping our reputation, our safety, and our power intact? There's much that we have to learn from Pontius Pilate. Ultimately, the one who looked like the most powerful one in the room was weak and fearful and cowardly. But Jesus he is ultimately the one that is calling the shots. He is ultimately the one that has all power. And that is good for us. Because again, as we look at the trials that we are discussing this evening, the trial of Jesus and the trial of our own hearts and lives, again, we will find that the verdict is in. We stand guilty before God. But there is hope for us Jesus, the innocent one, Jesus, the powerful one, can pardon us. And that takes us to our final point. Jesus can pardon us because he is the only rightful substitute. What do I mean by that? Uh, how can Jesus be an actual substitute for us? He can be a substitute because he is both innocent and he is powerful. So again, we've been looking at uh, this, this court case, this Roman and this Jewish hybrid court case that occurred nearly 2,000 years ago. But really, the background to all of this, the events that are coming into play, it goes back so much further than that. There are so many different events from the book of Leviticus that are actually being played out here uh, in John chapters 18 and 19 in this court case that is going on. I do not know how to pronounce one of the Hebrew verbs, uh, so I'm going to just give us, you know, the English translations. But there are two uh, theological matters that really come into play in this whole court case. The theological doctrine of atonement and the theological doctrine of ransom. And both are elaborated um, in the Old Testament. Both are elaborated uh, in Leviticus in plenty of places. So here's this whole idea, this idea of ransom. Uh, when I was a kid, I watched the movie by Mel Gibson, uh, Ransom, and it was a really good movie. And the story goes, um, his child is kidnapped, and he must pay a ransom to the bad guys to get his, his child back. Um, that's not actually how ransom would play out in Scripture. That's not how ransom would play out in the Old Testament. So we have this idea of ransom, but essentially how atonement could occur and how ransom could occur, uh, it was ultimately up to the innocent party to pay a ransom on behalf of the guilty party to make the guilty party right. Uh, so again, we think of this idea of ransom like, oh, pay it to me and I'll give you back, you know, what was lost. But in Scripture, we see this idea one more time. The innocent party was allowed to pay a ransom on behalf of the guilty party to make everybody right. One, an example is that if you own uh, an ox and you are negligent with your ox and your ox murders somebody else, uh, the owner locks, you're, you are called to death. 
uh, because of your negligence, you should be put to death. But the family uh, who had somebody murdered, on your behalf, they could pay a ransom, they could pay your atonement uh, that you may be made right with both the family that just lost someone and all of the people of God in general. The principle here that we need to understand is that the innocent party is the one that pays the price to make the guilty party right. And that's exactly what we see here. Because see, here's the thing. We've been looking at these uh, different people in the text. We've been looking at the judge, Pontius Pilate. We've been looking at the prosecution, the religious leaders in the day. And there are things we should learn from them, and there are ways that we should identify with them. But there's another character. There's another character in this text that we haven't even really said his name yet, but he's the one that we really need to look at because ultimately he is most representative of us. His name is Barabbas. Uh, in this text, we're told of one of Barabbas' sins. I believe we are told that Barabbas is a uh, robber. Barabbas is a thief. But if we look at the rest of what the gospel writers have to say, we see that it's a lot more than that. Barabbas is a murderer. Barabbas is an uh, insurrectionist, and he is a rebel. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff that goes into uh, who Barabbas is and what Barabbas has done. But of everybody in the room, you know the religious leaders, they're questioning, is Jesus actually guilty? We know Pilate's questioning, is Jesus actually guilty? But nobody in the room questions, is Barabbas guilty? They know. He is a criminal. Uh, he has violated God's law. He has violated Roman law. He's stolen. He's murdered. Uh, he's a rebel. Uh, he is guilty. And again, what I think that we're supposed to see here in this text, if we are to truly identify with anybody else, it's Barabbas. Because so too, when we look at the law of God, uh, we see that we have violated it. Uh, Jesus makes, he shows us the heart of God's law, and when Jesus shows us the heart of God's law, we see actually that it's not even just the letter that we violate, but when we lust, it's the same as committing adultery. But when we have cruel anger, it's the same as if we've committed murder. When we covet and desire what our neighbor has, it's the same as if we have stolen. In other words, we're insurrectionists. In other words, we are rebels against the true and great high king. Nobody questioned whether Barabbas was guilty, and so too, if God's law is the standard, nobody would question that you and I are guilty. But do you notice, do you notice Barabbas, out of all of this, he actually ends up with life. Why does he end up with life? because of the work of Jesus. You see, he doesn't understand, and he doesn't see the theological significance. He thinks that, you know, he just hit the lottery, that, that he is being let go, that he is being set free because of this man named Jesus. But don't you notice that it's the exact same thing for us? We are guilty. Jesus is innocent. But because of the work of Jesus that is accomplished on the cross on our behalf, uh, we get a new verdict. We receive uh, the innocent status that he has before God. We, Jesus is willing to pay our ransom, and he does, for people like Barabbas, for people like you and me. 
On the cross, he looks to the thief to the right of him and says, on this day you will be with me in paradise. As he is being murdered and abused and put to death, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Yeah, the main person that we are to identify with in this text, again, is Barabbas, because Jesus substituted himself, the guilty party. Uh, Again, the one who there's no question, he is guilty. He receives, ultimately, new life while Jesus is put to death. And what this means for us today, what this ultimately means, is that the verdict on ourselves Uh, It is not ultimately dependent upon uh, who we are or what we have done, but the verdict on who we are in standing before God and standing before one another, ultimately it is dependent upon Jesus. If you are willing to repent of your sins, if you are willing to trust Jesus with your heart and with your life, you too, like Barabbas, may receive a new verdict, not guilty. You may go from being saint to sinner. You may go from being enemy to being called beloved. You may be made right with God, not because of anything you've done, but because of our substitute. There is hope for violators of God's law like you and me, and the only hope that we have is Jesus Christ. He is the innocent one, he is the powerful one, and he is willing to substitute himself for you and me that we may be made right with God. May we turn to him in faith. Let's pray.